Hello, and welcome to United for Peace, episode 3.2, The Indonesian National Revolution, part 2. Welcome back. Last time, we covered Indonesia's struggle for independence roughly until Louis Mountbatten was tapped to command Allied operations in the archipelago in late 1945. Little had been done to reclaim land for the Dutch, but widespread violence is about to break out, culminating in a series of pitched battles. Between mid-September and mid-October 1945, Australian troops arrived to accept the Japanese surrender at their naval stations around eastern Indonesia. In the end, they fielded two divisions. Some Dutch troops and administrators accompanied them, and they reoccupied the major cities in these regions, often before Republican administrations could be established in the first place. They put down demonstrations and arrested some pro-Republican officials, even in South Sulawesi, where Lamaponyuki rallied the aristocrats to the Republican cause. Dutch return was begrudgingly accepted. The consensus reached that fighting the Australians would be unwise. After all, they were just battle-hardened in the Second World War. Now, British command really did want to avoid fighting with Indonesians altogether, and so Mountbatten directed the former Dutch colonial army and fresh Dutch troops to eastern Indonesia, where reoccupation was already underway, if you remember that from last episode. This was basically okay with the Dutch lieutenant governor, Hubertus van Mook, who wanted to concentrate on the economically valuable east to start in any case. Additionally, he thought the eastern populace to be less anti-Dutch. This isn't important, but a funny side note on this. We speak of the lieutenant governor here because no governor general was ever appointed again after World War II. At least the Dutch weren't so arrogant as to presume they could meaningfully do so, I guess. Around the same time, perhaps because of the gradual return of Dutch administration with the arrival of foreign troops, the youth groups began targeting foreigners, or really just anyone considered a possible threat, or a spy. And when I say target, I mean for just about anything you would expect to happen in the chaos of revolution. Intimidation, beating, robbery, murder, rape, and outright massacre. Dutch internees were especially victimized, but it was also regular for ethnic Chinese, people of mixed Dutch-Indonesian descent, and Ambonese people, an indigenous group in the Maluku Islands, to be targeted. Such ethnically charged attacks would happen throughout the course of the whole revolutionary period, but most especially during the period known as the Bersiap. Depending on who you ask, this lasts from now, late 1945, into either late 1946 or late 1947. Full disclosure, not that it's too important, 1946 is the year I saw most cited, and so take that as you will. Bersiap, by the way, is an Indo name given to the period based on the revolutionary battle cry Siap, or Get Ready, which would be shouted by revolutionary soldiers as perceived enemies of the revolution approached pro-republican areas. And whenever you want to say it ended, the wildly varied estimates place the death toll anywhere between 3,500 all the way to 30,000 killed. 
the NIOD, Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies, figures around 5,500 Dutch nationals were probably killed, maybe more, but definitely no more than 10,000. Most people killed in this period were not engaged in any political or militant activity. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And one more side check before I get back on track. I say that is a name given to the period by the Indo people, who are the previously mentioned people of mixed Dutch-Indonesian descent. They have a quite richly cultured diaspora around the world now. And now, back to the story. Attacks characterizing the Bersiap often took the form of street fights, typically lopsided. Most especially in Java and Sumatra, these became more and more frequent the closer the Allied forces got as they fanned out across the islands. And they put the Japanese soldiers left behind in a very difficult position. As we have seen, they wanted to take a hands-free approach to Indonesia, essentially ignoring their obligations under the terms of surrender to the Allies. However, with these clashes, that was not a feasible option anymore. The civil unrest reached such ferocity, with their own comrades also being targeted, that they felt compelled to act. So, in October 1945, Japanese forces attempted to reassert their authority in towns and cities, which they themselves had given over to Indonesian administration. This marked the beginning of warfare in the Indonesian National Revolution. Before moving on, let's talk about how the Japanese proceeded. After all, I said they had disarmed as part of the terms of surrender to the Allies. That is true, although some units had not yet followed through on that in any case. Those who did, it is safe to assume, found some other way to acquire the firepower they needed. I have not read any descriptions of how, but it is likely that the arms they had turned over to Indonesians remained in the same armories, and were thus relatively easy to regain access to. Perhaps they simply took what was formerly set aside for police. I do not know for sure, but the point is, there are conceivable ways they could have rearmed, and they certainly did not join battle unarmed. What followed was a series of massacres and battles, which would have been unthinkable just months before. On October 3, 1945, Japanese military police massacred Republican youth in Pekalongan, Java. One week later, Japanese troops drove Republicans out of Bandung, Java, then turned it over to the lagging British after one week. Then, on the 14th, the Japanese began to retake Semarang, again planning to hand it over to the British afterwards. Republicans in the city retaliated by killing over a hundred Japanese prisoners they had been holding. After nearly a week, British forces arrived, with the Japanese nearly in control of the whole city. Around 500 Japanese and 2,000 Indonesians had perished in the fighting. Alarmed by the massacring of prisoners, the British decided to evacuate Indos and Europeans as rapidly as possible from the Javanese interior. They succeeded in extracting about 10,000 people, mostly women and children, but encountered so much Republican resistance that they required airstrikes to complete their mission. Mind you, 
As far as this evacuation mission goes, they often did not hold what territory they took. It was a rather stunning commitment to saving civilian lives, which was rather absent during World War II. Despite all this, leadership on either side of the conflict really did want to avoid fighting. The British up to this point had done everything they could to avoid armed engagements. And as mentioned, President Sukarno believed diplomacy and institution building made the best approach to independence. In fact, the British requested to arrange a ceasefire with Sukarno, who did just so on November 2nd. And now we come to Sorabaya, where revolution did what revolution does best and muddied the waters. The senior most Japanese commander in the city's area, Vice Admiral Shibata Yaichiro, favored the Republic of Indonesia over European colonial dominance of the archipelago, and so he prepared a way to arm the Republicans, even while his comrades elsewhere were helping the British reassert Dutch domination, again, though, hindered by lack of actual British interest in doing so. When a Dutch Navy captain reached the city as the first Allied representative on the scene, Shibata dutifully surrendered to him. He then instructed everyone under his command to disarm, as per the terms of surrender. But instead of turning things over to the Allies, since the Allies didn't really control the area yet, they turned them over to the Indonesians, who did control the area still. And of course, the Indonesians would be responsible for turning these arms over to the Allies at the appropriate time, because that was definitely going to happen. The now well-armed Indonesians decided that Sorabaya would be the bane of their enemies. From October to November, prominent Muslim figures in Sorabaya declared that war in defense of the Indonesian fatherland was holy war, and it was the duty of all Muslims to support the cause. Radical students poured into the city, and a firebrand known as Brother Tomo used the local radio station to encourage fanaticism throughout the city. Fanaticism would prove useful, for Sorabaya would be the site of the largest battle of the whole revolution. On October 25th, 6,000 British Indian troops approached the city with intent to evacuate internees. Within the next three days, armed hostilities broke out. Between 10 and 20,000 regulars of the nascent People's Security Army, the Army of Republican Indonesia, and anywhere from 70 to 140,000 people in mobs killed many of the British Indians and were positioned to maybe even wipe out the entire formation. However, the British flew in Sukarno and Hatta and arranged a ceasefire altogether, in effect, on October 30th. As you may suspect, however, it did not hold long. Fighting broke out again, and the local British commander, Brigadier Malaby, was killed. Then, there was a little lull in the fighting, during which the British brought reinforcements and launched a bloody punitive sweep. In just three days, they captured about half the city. Despite the astonishing numerical superiority of the Indonesian fighters, their poor armament, and lack of military cohesion plus experience proved a poor matchup against the British forces, another army battle-hardened by the Second World War, 
and equipped with world-class armaments. Still, fighting would continue for another three weeks. The whole time, British forces advanced under the cover of aerial attacks and naval bombardments. The firepower was devastating, but the people resisted them fiercely all the way. The British managed to get to and release the internees they came for, and this city they did occupy until November 1946. But, by battle's end, some 6,000 Indonesians lay dead, alongside anywhere between 300 and 2,000 British dead. Also destroyed during the battle were Dutch hopes for an easy reoccupation. It was rather common for Dutch observers to believe that the Republic was nothing more than a small cadre of Japanese collaborators without popular support. Paternalistic authorities tend to actually buy into their own propaganda. They couldn't believe that their enlightened civilization was actually unpopular. Although the Battle of Sorabaya cost the Republic much in terms of arms and manpower, it dispelled the myth that Indonesia would cave to the Dutch easily. As well as this, it convinced the British that the best course of action would be to remain as neutral as possible in the whole situation. If they were less than eager to fight before, they absolutely dreaded the idea now. While shattering the idea that Indonesia could easily be reconquered may have been helpful, Sukarno did not approve of such violence, as noted a couple times now. His distaste for violence was not enough to gain him any extra favor with the Dutch, though it certainly lost him some favor with the foot soldiers of the revolution. As such, this diplomatic attitude of his almost cost him everything. The Dutch were still cold towards him, having been an important Japanese collaborator during the war, and Van Mook was instructed not to deal at all with him, and the muscle of the Republican movement grew suspicious of him. The Dutch and Van Mook weren't the only ones wary of Sukarno on account of his collaboration during the Japanese occupation. The Allied nations found Sukarno's collaboration so distasteful that a man named Sutan Syahri was able to gain political clout in the Jakarta elite circles on the true premise that he was more acceptable to the Allies. The Allies liked him the Allies liked him more, even despite the fact that Siachir wrote and circulated a pamphlet titled Our Struggle, promoting international socialist revolution. I suppose he at least had the good sense to endorse a specifically democratic form of socialism and have no connection to any former Axis nation. Siachir and another significant figure in the revolution, Amar Syarifudin, engineered a takeover of the Central Indonesian National Committee, the main engine of the Republican political power at the time, on October 16, 1945. They did so largely on the premise that the Allies would prefer them on account of their non-collaborationist history. The National Committee, being the engine of Republican power, for instance, provided Sukarno and his special presidential powers for the emergency, Siachir and Siarifudin put an end to these special powers. When I said Sukarno and Hatta were flown out to Sorabaya to arrange a ceasefire, Siachir and Siarifudin accompanied them 
as other national leaders at this point. Along with the termination of special presidential powers, Tsiakhri and Tsiarifudin arranged for the National Committee to gain legislative power. Furthermore, the legislation would be conducted by a working group which they selected. They further went on to subordinate the cabinet to the committee rather than the president. Eventually, they even formed a new cabinet with Siachir as prime minister and Siarifudin as information minister on November 14, 1945. All this as they rolled out a new parliamentary system. Mind you, none of this is in the constitution adopted back in August, so it really only took three months for the constitution to be suspended in practice, while theoretically in effect. Meanwhile, political parties started to form, which effectively institutionalized the many internal conflicts of present-day Indonesia. So, Sukarno and Hatta were in some ways overshadowed by Siahir and Siar Fudin, who, along with their followers in the former Jakarta Youth Underground, essentially ran the revolution center. They exerted very little influence on the countryside, but had Jakarta on lock. And since these new leaders were definitely not Japanese collaborators, it did not take long for Van Mook to open up talks with Siachir. Besides the brutalization of foreigners and perceived spies, the open combat joined with the Allied armies, and political turnover at the top levels, the internal conflicts I mentioned just briefly ago flashed to life like an oil fire in a kitchen. For that, we need to rewind just a little bit. By early October, a number of groups had started to target village headmen, mayor-like authorities, on the north coast of Java. Leading the actions were young activists from the Orthodox Islamic community, survivors of a 1926 Communist Party uprising, and also formerly underground communists. These groups did not, by and large, cooperate in these actions, however. There was some overlap here and there, but mostly, one or the other would take the initiative to replace headmen when and where they could, in pursuit of their own visions of social reform. There were some common themes, however. The largely peasant population wanted governance more favorable to them, and lots of people wanted to avenge the oppression suffered during Japanese occupation, in which many standing headmen played a role. And so, by the end of 1945, the regions of Brebes, Pemalang, and Tegal had been replaced by supporters of this social revolution, so-called. This chaotic episode, known as the Three Regions Affair, peaked in December 1945, on December 12, 1945, social revolutionaries from these regencies moved into a neighboring regency of Pekalongan, attacking the Indonesian Army HQ in the region and overthrowing the regent. A former secret Communist Party member and underground leader who had been imprisoned by the Japanese took his place. The attack on Army HQ being repulsed and the central republican leadership finally taking action, a counter-revolutionary counter-offensive began. Over 1,000 social revolutionaries were arrested through these territories, effectively quashing the whole movement. However, 
many of the new headmen put in charge by the revolutionaries were allowed to maintain their positions. In contrast, social change came from the top down in other places, where socio-political elites were eager to get ahead of the curve, being savvy enough to understand the relationship revolutions usually create between their lives and their status. Time to rewind yet again, as so many things happen concurrently. Please don't damage the tape. In August 1945, the Sultan of Yogyakarta, using his personal popularity, newly established direct control of his principality's administration, and the prestige of the Sultanate, began to launch reforms he started planning during the Japanese occupation. By early 1946, the electorate had been expanded for village councils and headmen, and the head tax was abolished. Beyond this, he downsized the bureaucratic role of his royal court, making them more custodians of royal tradition than anything else. Furthermore, he made Indonesian, rather than Javanese, the official language of communication, thus removing the subtle hierarchical distinction attached to Javanese. Besides these civil matters, he also created a people's army loyal to himself. So much did he embrace a pre-colonial military role that he regarded himself as an army officer, and the Republican army commanders agreed with him. He was listed on the rolls as an officially commissioned officer of the Indonesian army, though I do not know which rank. Sorry for anyone who was nerdy enough to care about that. Like me. So, that takes us to early 1946. But, we are not yet done with December 1945. Again, so many concurrent events. One such event is the outbreak of a civil war in Aceh, that is, northernmost Sumatra. We will return to that in a minute to follow that thread through. Also in December 1945, the Dutch advanced towards Jakarta and Bandung, the capital and another prominent Republican city. As you can see, they're finally getting their army back together in sufficient force. This caused the Republican government to flee to Yogyakarta, where our friend the Sultan welcomed them. The government would remain in Yogyakarta for the rest of the revolution, since the Dutch controlled so much of Java, including most major cities at this point. Now, all the universities taken with Jakarta and Bandung, the Republican government decided to establish a new one in Yogyakarta. Thus was founded Gajamada University in 1946. In keeping with his spirit of reform, the Sultan allowed the front portion of his court to be used to house this university. On account of this, a close advisor of his noted in his book, Social Changes, that, quote, the revolution could not possibly smash the palace doors because they were already wide open, end quote. Now, what's the deal with Aceh? There, aristocratic administrators expected the Dutch to take back control of the island, and were ready to support them. Recall that the Dutch had made many aristocrats even wealthier as part of a typical imperial strategy to leverage local rulers to exert political control. However, regional religious leaders 
largely supported the Republican cause and led large swaths of the populace in opposing the old order. Between December 1945 and March 1946, Republicans imprisoned and killed the leading aristocrats of Aceh. So, long-standing conflicts over land, administration, and the judiciary, temporarily halted by the Japanese occupation, had been settled by an Islamic revolutionary liquidation of the old aristocratic order. Aceh, now united by a single ideology and a new, unified elite, would remain the most stable region in Indonesia during the course of the revolution from here on, and the Dutch would never return there. They no longer had a viable strategy for reoccupation, seeing practically no allies to count on in the region. However, despite the stability, Aceh would be mildly alienated from the rest of Indonesia at this time, for while the rest of the nation debated whether or not Islam should dominate their republic, it already dominated in Aceh. While Aceh's liquidation of its old masters concluded in March 1946, that is precisely when two other regions of the island picked up their old conflicts. In South Sumatra, poor people led by leftists of various flavors determined to settle old scores. See, as the Dutch surrendered and or withdrew from Indonesia in 1942, poor masses led by said leftists began robbing, arresting, and otherwise targeting aristocracy. The Japanese occupation, however, had temporarily halted this activity. With the occupiers gone, or essentially powerless, they picked right back up again. Robberies, arrests, and beatings were not the end of it, however. Soon, the Porg began outright massacring the old elites. This is the sort of class conflict typically envisioned with the words social revolution. The Yogyakarta leadership, local Republican leaders, and local army units all opposed this, and by the end of April, most of the leaders of this violent outbreak had been arrested or forced into hiding. However, that means for nearly two months, there were essentially mobs slaughtering sociopolitical elites at will. The whole episode revealed a lack of Republican cohesion in the region, and the Dutch would exploit that. Lastly, for our March outbreaks in Sumatra, a northerly territory just south of Aceh saw two ethnic groups, one largely Christian, the other largely Muslim, begin attacking each other. It was one of those endless spirals of escalation and retaliation, reminiscent of nothing so much as a blood feud. Nearly 300 people were killed in this ethnic conflict before the Republic could put a stop to it. All the while, the divides in that Republic's leadership continued to solidify, and the many political factions of the Revolution and their maneuvering will be the primary subject of next episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you will join me next time as we ride the currents of political intrigue all the way to the United Nations finally getting involved here on United for Peace. <laughs>